City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. And once again, we are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to hear discussions of the realities of working in the theatre. From an extraordinary list of performers, producers, playwrights, designers, casting directors, press agents, unions, and guild leaders, all the people that make up working in the theater. And since the thing first introduced these seminars some 25 years ago, there have been over a thousand of Broadway and off-Broadway's best which have come to these seminars as our guests. The Wing is the founder of the Tony Awards, uh, which are given each year for distinguished achievement in the theater. However, as many of you know, we are much, much more. For example, our year-round programs are dedicated to serving the community and the theater. We honor excellence in the theater, and we help to develop new audiences as well discriminating audiences. And to do this, we have created an audience development program for students in public high schools. Our introduction to Broadway has begun seven years ago and has enabled some 70,000 New York students to attend a Broadway show, many of them for the very first time. They are able to meet and question the cast. And the majority of these students not only is it the first time in the theater, but it's the first time on Broadway as well. And then there's our newest program, Theater in Schools. Theater professionals like those you will meet today go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students to talk about working in the theater. What is ahead for them as they enter the world of theater? And of course then, there's the Wing's legendary hospital program, which dates back to World War II and which goes into from the stage door canteen to having performers go from Broadway, off-Broadway, and the cabaret world. They entertain, have, have entertained more than 75,000 patients in nursing homes, hospitals, children's wards, and AIDS centers. We bring the magic of theater to those that cannot get to the theater itself. We are indeed proud of our history, the work we do, and we are happy to have a wonderful working theater relationship with the theatrical community and are grateful to everyone who makes 
what the theatre wing does, does very well and helps to make it possible. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's seminar. And now, it, I would like to introduce you to our performance panel. Reading from our left is Brian Stokes Mitchell, Natasha Richardson, and Blythe Danner on the, on the right, and Alfred Molina, and I skipped John Vickery, who was before Blythe Danner, <laughs> Alfred Molina, and Edward Herman. And now I would like to introduce our co-moderators, Dasha Epstein, who is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing, <coughs> has produced both on and off-Broadway. Jim Dale, who is actor and uh, has been on Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, and London as well. <laughs> and I think that uh, these two are quite capable of keeping this wonderful cast of players on the line to tell you what it is to work in the theater. Let us welcome them. Dash it. Well, I have to stay on my toes, Isabel, because I'm surrounded by actors, and being a producer, I've got to get in here, too. But however, I'm happy to be here. Jimmy, I'm glad you're with me. You memorized your lines. I'm going to read some of them. Uh, the first question, which I'd like to <coughs> hand to you, is sort of a triple header. And I'd like to ask each of you briefly to tell me, how did you start in the theater? What was your schooling? And what was your first professional job? And can we go around quickly? <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, it was process of elimination in, in college. The last two years in college I did uh, concentrated in drama. I went to a repertory company in Dallas, the Dallas Theater Center, rather than Yale. It seemed like a more interesting program at the time. This is way back in 65. Uh, from there, I suppose my first professional job was as a pirate in Peter Pan with a yarn wig. Uh, this was without an equity card. but. Uh, in New York, it was uh, when I finally got to New York in 1970, uh, after having gone to Lambda as well, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, uh, it was a, a part in um, uh, Arsenic and Old Lace and down at Ford's Theater. It was run by Circle in the Square at the time, and that's how I sort of slid into it. I had about five years before I came to New York uh, in, the, in, province, in, the, in doing repertory and training. Well, after seeing Edward in his yarn wig, I decided to... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I trained uh, in London at the Guildhall School, uh, and then uh, when that finished, I, I, I was a stand-up. I, I did some stand-up comedy work uh, on my own and, and as part of a double act for about two years, and we weren't very good. And then uh, my, my first sort of proper acting job, I, 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 I was the back end of a tiger in a children's theatre company. <laughs> so I spent a year doing that. Thank you. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> That's all? That's all I did. Yeah. <coughs> all I, I have to talk quickly, let's see. Um, the first, uh, well, I grew up in a family that sang all the time. My parents were, my first memory was Hansel and Gretel, the entirety in my high chair. My mother, that's where the interest came, I suppose. Then I was an exchange student in Berlin the year the wall was built, back in the dark ages. And, and uh, we, I joined this little group at the America Club that performed musicals. 
and people were fleeing by the thousands, which is why they built the wall, of course. And they'd come to America House, and, and they'd come with whatever they could escape with, which was usually, if anything bigger than a bread box, they were suspected of fleeing and pulled off the train. That they came through Checkpoint Charlie. And, um, and I would just get on the train and watch their reactions, and I'd go back and forth. And then they'd come to the America House, and we were up there singing inane things like, I'm just wild about Harry. And these people sitting in the audience, having just escaped with their lives, sitting there either laughing or usually sobbing, probably because we were <laughs> the so entertainment. Bad. <laughs> but they just escaped with their lives, and, and we were astonished. With, it was just such a surreal experience, an astonishing experience, that I, I suppose that's sort of what... It was a very dramatic thing that happened and drew me to it. Then I went to Bard College, had a wonderful drama, group of drama teachers there. And um, I first got my equity card playing Laura in the Glass Menagerie at the Fishkill Theater, and then spent many, many years at the Williamstown Theater Festival. Thank you. Um, I got into this profession completely by accident. Uh, I was drafted by my English teacher in high school. Uh, I, w I went to a very small uh, high school in Berkeley, California, and uh, they didn't have many people to choose from. My first role was uh, Sir Toby Belch <laughs> with a pillow stuffed down my uh, pants. I, I, I actually trained to be a mathematician. Alfred wasn't a very good stand-up comedian, and I wasn't a very good mathematician, so uh, somehow I stumbled into this because I, I, I always had fun doing it. Um, so I, I decided to take it seriously. And uh, after I got out of college with my bachelor's degree in mathematics, I actually, a couple years later, went to England and studied at a place called the Drama Studio, um, which is right across the street from the old Ealing Film Studios. Um, my first professional role was uh, Laertes in Hamlet, or as I like to call him, Lertz. 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 Thank you. And I guess I should go to Jim now, since you're not only a moderator, but how did you start? Oh, um, I started as an impressionist um, when I was about <laughs> 16. Um, I, I did, did ballet and tap for six years, and then I, I went to an audition at, uh, at a musical theater. Um, and I walked on the stage and I tripped over the curtain as, as I walked on and I fell flat on my face and I did my impressions and the man said Th those weren't very good impressions I said they were, I think they're very good he said but none of us know who, who your mother's butcher is <laughs> <laughs> or the rent man I said yes but they do in the town that I come from and so, he said yeah, but they, they were terrible impressions but the fall you did when you came on <laughs> that was very, very good. Get an act where you fall over. <coughs> I went back that night with a, a tumbling act, and uh, that was my break into show business. He saw it, and it, it got a laugh, and he asked me to join. He asked me to join the show, and I stayed with him for about two years. That was my entry into show business. Knockabout comic. Natasha, uh, um, I trained at the Central School in London for three years, and um, at the end of my time there. I auditioned for various reps and I got um, into the Leeds Playhouse and uh, to play sort of ingenue parts in two productions and I remember being quite surprised because it was the first time that I'd ever had to play anyone my own age because at drama school you always had to play someone. It was always the older women roles that I got cast in so I didn't know really how to play, any, how to play anyone who was 18 and um, so that's, that's how I started. 
The, uh, uh, I, I started out in San Diego, California. I went to a place uh, when I was 14 years old. There was a place, it was like a high school of performing arts, kind of. Uh, it was called San Diego Junior Theater at the time. I'm not even sure that it's really around in its form anymore. And uh, outside of that, I studied acting, singing, dancing with the private teachers, uh, whoever I could get my hands on down there, and ended up working in pretty much any theater in San Diego <coughs> that I could. And my first professional job was with the Old Globe Theater uh, in a production of Godspell that they had there. And I got my equity card through a company called the Twelfth Night Repertory Company that at that time was in uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And I thought, ah, there's a great opportunity to get a card and to later move up to Los Angeles, which is what I ended up doing. Good. Okay, there's one question that um, uh, last time I was on the panel, they, they asked me, and I thought I'd throw this at you. It's how much preparation uh, do you do, each of you, in, in, in readiness for the role? Uh, lots of people do turn up for that first day at the, uh, at the reading very well prepared. Laurence Olivier turned up for The Merchant of Venice um, and with no script. And we sat around the table, and as we read the roles, it said, Shy enter Shylock, and he proceeded to stand up and do a complete performance of Shylock, which he had prepared for the last year. Now, that's going to some extreme, but he's Laurence Olivier. Uh, so, um, general question then. Um, what sort of preparation do you do? Is it necessary to do uh, any at all? Uh, do you have to um, leave yourself wide open for what the director is going to suggest in those early days? Or do you come to the, that first day's read-through with some idea in your head or no idea? Where do you, how do you begin? Live. Mm. Oh, well, you were looking at me. That's oh, I, I don't have my glasses on, so I'm not sure. Borrow mine. <laughs> <laughs> See, is that you? That's, oh, it is. that's, that's Jim there. <laughs> Jim. Well, lots of, lots of reading. You know, right, right now we're working, Edward and I are working on the Deep Blue Sea, so I read the Vatican biography, and, and there's um, lots of emotional stuff in this very rich um, Stuff. So I try to leave myself as open as possible, but also to do as much preparation as possible, and mostly reading. And uh, I must admit, I <coughs> snuck a look at the, the BBC production that they did in London a few years ago, which was very helpful. When I was a young actor, I never would deign to do such a thing. I was a purist. I had to come all, you know, from my own complete preparation. But as I've gotten older, I thought, why not steal from the best? So every so often, if there's something wonderful piece, I'll. And Penelope Wilton was very generous in talking to me on the phone for who, who played it recently in London when they did it at the Almeida and then it moved to the West End and um, suggested certain cuts that we also implemented and uh, was wonderfully generous. So that was a big help. Got a lot of preparation from her. Since we're fortunate to have you both here, could you be specific and talk about how you prepared for Deep Blue Sea, both you and Ed, did you both come together? Were you, did you both know that you were going to be in it? Was one well, cast before the other? I don't know how it actually worked. We neither of us did the reading at, at the roundabout. They called me about it, and then and, uh, we, we were working on a television sh uh, film together. Mm -hmm. And you were in the same breath. I thought, this is, this is great. Why haven't they contacted you? And you said the same thing, and, then, and they did. I mean, like the next day or something like that. Um, so we uh, knew we were going to do it. I think we prepared differently. Uh, it, it, generally speaking, if, if, uh, if I know I'm going to do a play, I'll read about the period if I don't know about it. 
and I immersed myself. This is Radigan, this is 1951 in England at a particular time in a particular uh, place, uh, and it's a particular world. But generally, I like to walk in with a tabula rasa. I'd, I'd like to start from scratch uh, uh, with the play, even obviously read the plays quite a few times and get an idea of what you think this is about. But you want the rehearsals to sort of generate and percolate and get stuff going in, in rehearsal because you can discover things in rehearsal that you didn't expect. Um, and if it's, it's not, I've found it not so wise to make up your mind exactly how you want to play it before you get in. Unless you have a two-week rehearsal period and you're doing King Lear, you better know exactly what you're going to do and do it beforehand and then come on and just arrange people on stage. Yeah, there must be some, um, in your case, John, I mean, when you turn up for the, the rehearsal of The Lion King, did you have any preconceived idea of what you were going to see? Well, or did I, it all come as a shock? It was a long sort of slowly immersing myself in it because I, I was involved in a workshop in the summer of 96, which was mostly uh, music and the book, and then, and then another workshop in the winter of 96 that was, uh, had to do with just the puppets. Mm -hmm. And having done the puppet workshop, I realized how, what a physical, physically daunting this role was going to be. So a uh, lazy person that I am, I actually did start going to a gym and using a trainer and all those sorts of things that I wouldn't ordinarily do for, yeah. for the preparation of the play because it's just so People physically demanding. People don't realize how physical it is eight times a week. Yeah. Oh boy, that can really not Well, I, I'm, I'm wearing 25 to 30 pounds of costume. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, have, I have strap marks <laughs> permanently from, from the uh, suspenders that I'm wearing that's holding it all up. Yeah. I, when I take my shirt off, I look as if I'm into bondage. <laughs> Which I'm not. <laughs> Um, you didn't have to qualify that. <laughs> I, I, only for your sake <laughs> did I qualify that. Okay, Natasha. Um, preparation Prep, in general or... Well, let's say just for, for this particular role in Cabaret. Well, Cabaret, well actually somebody said, somebody came back to my dressing room the other night and said, how did you prepare for this? And an old friend said she's been preparing for this role her whole life. <laughs> and, uh, I can believe And, that. and in a way I have. I, I grew up... Um, on the record of Cabaret, of the movie of, of Cabaret. Um, and I was too young when the movie came out to see it, but then I caught up with it later on TV. And I just loved it. And I loved Liza Minnelli in it. And we would put on little shows as kids. And I would, you know, put on stockings and try and do the whole Cabaret bit. And as, unfortunately, as we know, singing it with friends and in your bathtub is not the same <laughs> as singing it on a stage. And when the opportunity came for me to do this, I realized how much work I'd have to do, an enormous amount of work, particularly vocally, um, because I'm not a singer, I'm not a trained singer. I have had some singing experience, but it's not the same as being a, a singer. So I really set to work working with a couple of terrific voice coaches. Um, and this is like a couple of months in advance mm -hmm. of, of starting rehearsals. Was this before Sam came into the picture? Or no. was Sam there saying, this is the way, this is the direction we're going to go, this is perhaps focus on what, we, what I'd like to see in it? Did N that? No, I mean, I knew what... Uh, I sort of took the singing preparation on myself, but I mm -hmm. knew what... I mean, Sam and I... Actually, I will tell an interesting story. Sam and I met and we discussed the whole approach to the production and how it was going to be. And um, 
I arrogantly said, well, I'd love to do it if you'd put maybe this time in the song from the movie. And he said, well, I'd love to put it in the show. And I said, and I'm sure I can sing it. And then I started to work and realized, actually, I couldn't sing it. I couldn't sing it at all. And uh, it took me a very long time to be able to, to do that. And I nearly had to backtrack and say, take it out. I was wrong, because I can't sing it. But you sell it. That's but, more important. But well, I, all I, I, what I was going to say, I'm sort of rambling on a bit, but is that if I'd had to audition for this part, I mm. wouldn't have got it. Because um, when we actually came to start rehearsals in uh, December, I think, John Kander, who'd been, had uh, difficult experiences with past Sally Bowles's yeah. um, vocal abilities, um, got nervous and said he wanted me to come and sing for him. And uh, so I went along to his place and I had the flu and I had not worked on it at all and I didn't know the songs really. And they said, okay, we'll just start singing the songs. I started to sing and there was this kind of deathly silence in the room. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I, I, I don't think this feels good at all. They're not exactly jumping up and down with joy. And uh, finally we got to Mine Hair and, and everybody kind of sat up a little and they said, oh, well, how come you sing that song like that? And I said, because I know this song I, and so mm -hmm. I feel confident to sing it because I know it. Um, and then they felt, they, they all felt good and pleased, but all I know is that had it been an audition, mm. I sang four songs before we got to Mine Hair and after one song they would have said thank you very much, <laughs> on to the next. All right, Brian. Um, specifically on this show, the great thing uh, about it is uh, on Ragtime. Uh, Ragtime. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had a book to work from, and uh, uh, that I think is, if you ever have that opportunity, is the best place to go because there's, of course, so much more information in a book than you'll ever see on stage, and you also get into the heads of, of people. Um, also, I, I was reading whatever I could on the time. Uh, also, it wasn't a time that I was incredibly familiar with. And so I read books on Booker T. Washington, on W.E.B. Du Bois, who was kind of Booker T.'s Malcolm X at the time, to Booker T. Washington's Martin Luther King. Um, uh, any books on the period? The, I think you kind of, when you're doing a period piece, you have to kind of perform a sort of subtractive consciousness there's so much that we know now through just having television and the media that is available to us <laughs> that people didn't know back then. It was kind of a less familiar time. People were less familiar with each other. So part of it was trying to understand the consciousness in the head of the people. Um, the character of Colehouse Walker is based on uh, a Van Kleist uh, no novella called Michael Kolhas and uh, Dr. O, in homage to him, named the character Kohlhaus, which is a story that takes place in Dresden and uh, uh, in, in the uh, 1600s, I think it is, about a horse trader doing the same thing. He wants justice, and Martin Luther is the, is, is the intermediary instead. So whatever I could get my uh, hands on, also I had the advantage of having Edgar Dr. O around, so if I ever needed to ask him any questions, we were able to do that, and Frank Galati is this wonderfully um, uh, collaborative director, and he makes material available to you and loves the um, uh, uh, loves for actors to discover and to bring things into the rehearsal also. So uh, it was a 
really great, great experience. The when research. did you know that you had the part? I actually was very time beforehand. fortunate. I, I was doing Kiss of the Spider Woman before that. And about two months, I did a year and a half run on that show. And about two months into that run, Garth Drabinsky came up to me and said, um, I got a role. I want you to do it. It's yours if you want. <laughs> Can't tell you what it is. And uh, I said, well, okay, well, let me know. And every few months, he would keep coming back to me and saying, it's still yours. Still can't tell you what it is. And I think he was trying to get the rights for it at that point. And finally, about four months later, he said, all right, it's Cole House. It's ragtime. We're doing a workshop in about six months. It's yours. So I said, great. And so it was, I was in from the very beginning of the process, which was especially nice, because um, you can really add what you want to into the you Get all the richness out of it. Yes. Um, I, I have a question. That sort of goes with this. Well, we left, we oh, left. we left you out. <coughs> it's not. Oh, it's no. okay. <laughs> I've been having a wonderful time. <laughs> well, it's interesting to think about preparation because I, I, I've got no, uh, no kind of routine or anything like that. I think it, I, I always thought I've always thought preparation, any kind of prep, is like a mixture of, of sort of uh, detective work and. A kind of general sort of bathing in in kind of any information that you can mm. get, like like Ed says about reading about the period if it's a period piece or, but if, if but if you're if you're doing a play that's a completely new, brand new piece of work and, and you're the first person to play that role, then it's a there's a different there's a different kind of prep mm. required which is much more to do with invention, and uh, and and leaving yourself as blank as possible in a way and letting anything from in the rehearsals to come in and, and inform what you do mm. and it's uh, it's interesting how we've got uh, quite a range of different plays that we're all in a sense representing here you know period pieces uh, historical stuff you know um, and, and in my case a, a brand new play and it's odd that with art the three of us our prep consists because the play is essentially about a, fr a, a friendship between three men our our prep seemed to be to do with the, th the three actors just getting to know each other and spending time with each other. Mm. And so, our, our, you know, it sounds, it was actually delightful. Our preparation for four weeks of rehearsal was we would rehearse all day, then go and have dinner in the evening. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was, it was that, but it was actually, we, we found ourselves kind of taking on the, uh, making assumptions about our roles and playing, that, playing those roles with each other, mm -hmm. sort of in private, as it were. And that process still goes on every night. We, we meet up about half an hour before the show and we just sit in the green room and just talk. We just chat about what we've been doing during the day. But it's interesting how we, we kind of position ourselves mm -hmm. into where we're going to be for the next hour and a half on stage. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you do that each, at each performance? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but it's uh, but it's not like a formal thing. It's not like, no, oh, let's get together no, now and be spontaneous. That. But it, there is it a just, feeling that you've got to get together. Yeah, it just kind of happens. You know, and it, but it, but that's because the, the but if we were if we were doing like a a historical drama or something where we would you know I think the, the process would be very very different. I think yeah, every, every show has a different kind exactly. of preparation. Yeah. If I was doing Shakespeare, I would be doing a lot of reading. Mm. I don't think there's a lot of reading I can do about the Lion King. Mm. <laughs> Go to the zoo art being look such at a pictures of lions. <laughs> with art being such a popular play and starting in Paris and then going on to London and having success in both places, did you see the play and the acting there, or did you take your own interpretation of the role, oh, I, or I how went, did that affect you? I went to, uh, I saw the original cast in London 
just before I knew that I was going to be doing it on Broadway, uh, I saw, I think, the third cast after I knew I was going to be doing it here. I'm a great believer in, as Blythe was saying, I'm a great believer in stealing. I, I, I would tell any, I, I do some teaching now, and I, I tell all my students that stealing from the best is an honourable thing to do. Mm. Uh, if you borrow, that's just what mediocre actors do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, steal, 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 steal. Be brazen about it. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the chances are, any idea you come up with, someone else came up with it before. Mm. And so I, I stole shamelessly. I, I, I went to see these three wonderful, wonderful actors give these fantastic performances and I just took as much as I could stuff into my bag and mm -hmm. back with me. I'm shameless it about your, it. But then you make it your own. Not necessarily. If anyone says, if anyone says, oh, I didn't I see, uh, didn't I see Albert Finney do that? I say, yes, it's an homage. <laughs> You've always got a perfect cover. <laughs> with regard, with regard to one thing um, that we all go through, I hope you all go through it, which is forgetting lines occasionally. <laughs> now, um, as a young man, I did my first musical, and I was supposed to leap on the stage and say to the villain, why in tarnation you low-down varmint, strike my poor little half with his sister Agnes, and then two or three more minutes of this, then he would slink off, my sister would run on, on, on and say, you certainly told him, I've been waiting to hear those words from your mouth for many a year. Right. This particular night, I leaped on and I said, get out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> And there was a long pause. He said, don't you want to tell me something? And I said, no. <laughs> Get out. He said, not even good luck? I said, no. And, he thinked, and my sister jumped on the stage and said, you, he, you certainly intended to tell him. <laughs> it was one of those embarrassing moments ever of forgetting lines. Now, I, I hope to God I'm not the only one. Um, mm -hmm. There must be other instances, so come on, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been really fortunate in that. Oh, so, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I never missed an entrance, never <laughs> dropped. <laughs> <one. laughs> I generally forget lines of music will drop out of my... Uh, the other day I was singing this is Make Them Hear You, and the word didn't come out at all. Good. I had no idea where it was. When it was coming up, I was thinking, I have no idea what this word is, and I'm singing the song. Okay, what's this word? Okay, I'll just not sing it. And I dropped the word and just went on with the song. Yeah. And you hope nobody knows, you know, in the old trick now with, with the microphones that everybody has is that, that, that always works, is if you forget a line, and then you get back to it when you when you remember where you are, and everybody thinks it's the sound system, especially if you act like actors. Shameless. Yes. Blame it on the sound man. Any big whoops? Oh yeah, absolutely. But for a while, actually, when I was doing the show in Los Angeles, it, I've never ever had this happen before. But for about a week, I had these huge anxiety attacks. Um, I start the second act with this soliloquy number, and I remember for about four performances, I'm standing on the steps going, I have no idea what I'm supposed to sing. I have no idea what the words are. And nobody's around me. I can't ask anybody. And you just go into this panic mode. And that's, of course, the worst thing that you can possibly do. So you try to breathe, and you trust that it's in your body. I'd already done four or five hundred performances of the show. And you just trust that it's in your body, and you get out there and just kind of I just do the tabula rasa kind of thing with my head. Okay, blank slate, I don't even know who I am. And something just happens and, and it comes out. But that's a, 
And I hope somebody else has stories about how, that. How do you know what to do? How do you know about calling on what you're calling on to give you those words? Is that part of experience? Is it anything that you can learn? What is it? I, Where do you get this to, that gets you over this? Oh, I don't think there's any other choice in that <laughs> particular case. I don't know. It's just a trust in your material and a trust in yourself mm -hmm. that you've done it enough times that if you just get out of the way, and I think that is such an important thing really generally in, in a performance, if you get out of the way of the character and get out of the way of the material and get out of the way of it, I find the panic attacks were coming in when I was thinking too hard. And mm -hmm. when I just went back, I just went back to the script and I just started studying the script and saying, yeah, I know that, I, I understand that, I'm not going to worry. But if you get out of the way, your body knows what to do. And, and, and I think that's the best way. Natasha, do you think, it, do you think it's a, a stress that comes into it? That there are times when you're on that stage stressed out after lots of rehearsals, and that's the time when your mind just blanks over for a few minutes? I think it can be. I actually think it can be because you're completely in the moment. You're so there that suddenly, and because something new happens, mm -hmm. Um, that it can throw you right out just for a second. I, I don't really have any interesting good stories well, you like will that. Have. I have only, <laughs> only in the sense that I, in, in this, I mean, it, when you're an actor and you blank on a line, then you can usually pick it up or another actor helps you out. Yes. Um, or you just skip on to the next. But it's when you call out, finally in desperation, you call out Q and somebody says, says a line back and you say, no, that's not it. <laughs> yes. Then you're in but trouble. Yeah. I just what, not had the thing. Blythe, have you ever had that? All the time. Oh, um, good. <laughs> it's, 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 it's the rule rather than the exception, although I think in my old age I'm getting a little better. Well, when I was playing Blanche um, and Chris Walken was Stanley and Sigourney Weaver was Stella, we were Williamstown, and, and it was just an easy word like big or huge, something like what huge lungs you have, she says to the Jimmy Norton who was playing the gentleman caller, I could not think of huge for the life of me. So I go, oh, what? Mm, uh, oh, voluminous lungs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the entire po poker, the poker table over on the other <laughs> range just all went <laughs> <laughs> So it took a few minutes to recover. I always make it more complicated. I don't know why. See, by this it's time, um, the, everybody in the cast knows your lines, so it just yes. needs to blow one line and it sends everybody into fits and laughter. John? Well, I, I've had my share of flubs. I think they usually happen to me when I, when I do that thing you, you're never supposed to do, which is congratulate myself on how well I'm doing. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, and it's, it's, it's like a bolt of lightning from God uh, immediately. Uh, uh, but Alfred, you, you don't have this problem. You just oh, improvise. Yeah. I, I, oh, I, think, I, I think any actor that says, you know, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we, all have, we, all have, we all have panics in, mm -hmm. in some... Forgetting your lines, I think, is just one manifestation of a panic. I mean, there's all kinds of other things that happen as well. Like you, you, can, you find yourself suddenly playing a moment or playing a line or, or changing the timing of something to such a radical degree mm -hmm. that it might make someone else forget their lines. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you get this kind of like a brainstorm sort of happens, you know, the, and, and, and I think it's just, I, I think it's something to do with what Natasha was saying about you're so completely into what you're doing that, that, that so, something, you know, no actor I don't think ever forgets that he or she is actually on a stage. You, you never get so lost that you, you think you're in, your front, you're in your front room. You know there's an audience there. There's always a, there's a you know, there's, there's an assumption. We, 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 we enter a contract. We, 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 
we have a deal with these with the audience. So there's always some there's always one element that outside of you that's kind of in control. But um, sometimes you just get lost. You, I I I've been lost. I, I um, for instance I've forgotten uh, on occasion the name of the character that I'm talking <laughs> to, and I may have a line where I have to call that person by name. I I I, I once did a small part in a in a uh, when I was carrying a spear at the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, years ago, I had one line. Uh, I played the smallest character in Troilus and Cressida, um, a character called Margarilon, who comes in and has to say, turn, slave, and fight. And then Thersites <laughs> says, what art thou? And he says, Margarilon, bastard son of Priam. And that's the, that's the role. And I uh, did a lot of prep for that. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and, and I, I came on, and I had to come on, rush on stage. I had to say, turn, slave, and fight. And the sightless turns around and says, what art thou? And I couldn't remember my name. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, bastard son of Priam. <laughs> and the actor went, ah, oh, you must be Margarita. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, you know, and then we carried on, but, it, yeah. but you know, I, 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 like two lines, and I forget one of them. You had a very, very long monologue, which is so important in art. What happens there? You're on your own completely. Yeah, yeah. Well, funny enough, that, that, that there's what's happened with that. that there's been, I shouldn't be saying this really, uh, but anyway, what the hell? Um, I. I haven't forgotten lines in the monologue. What I have done is I've forgotten whole sections of it. Like, there's, there's, there's a point in the, in, the, in, the, in the speech where I say a line like, uh, Mother, I have friends waiting for me. And at one point, the line is, Mother, I have friends waiting for me. We'll talk about this tomorrow. The second time I say it, I just say, Mother, I have friends waiting. And I got those two connecting moments mm -hmm. mixed up and I jumped to the second one and I missed out like a whole chunk of the speech in the middle and then when I got to the end of the speech uh, I started racking my brain thinking have I left out any important information which I had so I then tacked it onto the end which made a complete mishmash of the whole thing and it was uh, it was desire it was terrible. It was, it was, it was, it, you get this kind of cold sweat starts running down. And the two actors then took up. They didn't help me at all. They just held up the sign saying you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like what they Shakespeare, Shakespeare seems to be the the, the best place for, for some of the best ones. The, the, the one I remember the most didn't happen to me, but I was on stage. And since there's so many Brits here, it's in the Scottish play. Um, the fellow, I, was on, I was on stage as Malcolm and the fellow playing Macduff who has the line, which I, th I think can be a very effective line, but it's an odd line, all my pretty chickens in one fell swoop. And one night for some reason he started out with all my shitty prickins. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of paused and looked as if, you know, he knew he had done something. He was, he was also holding his hat at that that time because somebody says, you know, don't put your hat in front of your face. She said, all my shitty prickings. And <laughs> looked off in his face and said, in one swell poop. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of us just turned up stage and all you saw was... <laughs> it happens all the time. In well, it, it also happens in contemporary. I did a, a, a play called A Walk in the Woods, the, the, which the 
premise of which is non, doesn't exist any longer, this long negotiation with the Soviets. And I was lucky enough to do it with Sir Alec Guinness in London. And we were seven months at this. Now, this is a play that has some wonderful writing in it, but not a lot of subtext. So if you get lost, you don't know where you are. You can't make up the words, because each, each exchange is very much like the one that went before. So Alec had this way of getting up before you could feed him a line. He'd, look at, he'd get the glazed look in his eye, and then he would just walk off stage. <laughs> and I'm standing out there, you know, like holding my little ball bearings and saying, just, well, okay. And he would go off very slowly and then walk very slowly back on. And he said, don't worry, don't worry, they don't know. They really... And I had a friend who, a wise theatrical person, came to see a lot of plays, and he saw one of these flubs happen, and he left the stage and came on. And I said, I'm sorry about the flub. He said, what flub? Well, he left. Well, you're walking all over the stage, so it doesn't really matter. But the same play, about five months in, I also went up, and he, of course, didn't. He just looked at me with this bland, shot his cuffs, and said, "Well, you know, you're on your own." So I decided, well, I'll walk off stage. So I walked <laughs> off stage, and the stage manager was back there, and she was kind of bored, and she was totally lost. She was not paying attention to the script. So we were, I had no idea, and she had. Christ, I said, where is it? Uh, I don't, and Alec is sitting up. Mm. Then he pretends to hear something. And I said, look out of the corner of my eye, and he's dancing around the stage in the trees, listening for spies or something to sort of cover this huge hole. When we finally found the line, I went back on stage. I thought, yeah, they'll, they'll see that one. They, they, didn't, they didn't miss that one. But there's nothing quite worse than, than uh, losing your complete place in the play and not know how to get back into it because this is a play that's constructed sort of cyclically and you can't, it's like losing that in the But I think that's what a professional on. does, that's why I asked the question. Mm. You were able to get over it and continue it so that the audience is not Well, it was a radical way of getting over it, just walking off the stage <laughs> and getting the line and then not walking over. back on. But there's in, some ways, sometimes there's nothing else to do. In Shakespeare, there is the all-purpose line, I am amazed, my lord, and know not, know not, not what, what to, to say. say. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, what do you consider your biggest break in the theater? Blythe, do you want to start that one? Well, my, my very first Broadway show, I'd just come in as a kid, got lucky and got this role, Butterflies Are Free, and that was, that's the biggest success I've ever had. <laughs> Many years ago. What Time is success? War. What do you consider? Oh, success. What do you consider success? Success is, is, is doing it and uh, delving deeper every night, and I'm so in love with the character I'm playing now. I, you said you, you, be, don't, be, you always know the audience is there, and I've never had this happen before, where I actually forget I'm on stage. And it's a little terrifying. Never had, had that experience. She's on the brink of committing suicide sort of throughout the entire play. And, um, we worry and about her every night. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And I, don't, I, I guess it's, it's about uh, obsession of, with love, of being obsessed, and, and I think there's, there's a sort of a commune, communal thing that happens with the audience. I've never quite had that experience before, where you feel that everyone in the audience has been through this in some, uh, some way in, in, in their life. And, and there's a great, great uh, feeling giving of, back. of empathy. Hmm? Yeah, there's a great giving back. Yes, yes. And, and it's, it's really a wonderful experience. So to me, it's, it's just being, becoming one with the character and, 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 and having this, this great journey every night. The play sort of washes over 
washes over you and takes you along. And I think when that happens, it's just, it's just a dream come true for that to me is success, you know, whether... Natasha, you were talking before about the passion that you felt about doing Sally Bowles and Cabaret. Um, is there another role that you would like to do more than any other? Not, not really. I think, felt inside. I think what, one day I, I would like to have a crack at Blanche Dubois, but um, I can't really think of another part has that feeling. You'll probably be marvelous at whatever you choose because you're so great in cabaret. Um, Alfred, is there anyone that you... There used to be. I used to have, when I, when I was much younger, I used to have this, I had this list of roles. I thought, you know, when I'm, by the time I'm 25, I want to play this. By the time I'm 30, I want to do this. And as I'm getting older, I, I, most of them I haven't played. And I, I'm now sort of, uh, now I kind of, I, there, there's, there's a couple. I mean, I, I, before I get too old, I'd like to maybe have a go at Benedict. Maybe, and, uh, you know, things like that, but, but, but not really in order to kind of, to sort of become, just, just to do it, just to do it because mm. I, it's, a, it's a part that I love, I'd love to do. But this thing about, uh, I, I, the, the thing about the success and, the, and like big breaks, uh, I was, at the risk of sounding slightly Pollyannaish, I, I, the biggest thrill I ever got as an actor was at the end of one particular year when I suddenly realized that I'd actually, for the first time in my life, had actually started making a living mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as an actor. I was actually, that, that was the first year I actually didn't have to go off and do something else to pay the rent. I'd actually earned enough money that year to, to, to actually say, yes, this is how I earn my living. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, I've never quite gotten over that. That was like the most, that was the most thrilling thing. That's a very important goal. Yeah. Suddenly. You know, there is a... There is Only a happened that year, though. <laughs> 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 there is a thing that, that, that all of you have. Um, some people call it presence, others call it wobby, others call it magic, others call it... Um, it was uh, Ruth Gordon who came backstage one night and uh, I said, congratulations on everything, you know, you, I, I love you. And she said, pulled her dress up and I said what are you doing and there was her bare <laughs> belly there I said please Miss Gordon what are you doing she said feel that I said why she said, just feel it I said oh yes you're very fit she said that ain't muscle kid that's confidence yeah. and uh, you know I don't know what it is I mean is it magic is it wobby is it presence is it confidence but what is it that all of you have that you know that you have and when do you think you acquired it? You, that confidence came to you, Alfred, you just said, on that first year. It, you had a confidence that you knew you could go out there and earn money. Uh, but there's more of a confidence that I'm talking about now. There's the confidence of knowing who you are. And uh, when did any, all of you, acquire that? Can you remember that, Natasha? Well, I, I, to me, it's not like something you have and it's there. It's something but that it comes you from and goes. It stopped you <laughs> from running away to do something else. That's no, I, I, well, that's a different thing. Mm. I, I think for me, it's just that it's inconceivable to do anything else. It's, it's a vocation. It's not confidence. I think Ralph Richardson said that every time the, the difficulty about being an actor is it's like you have to, you're given this lump of gold and you have to fashion 
a beautiful brooch when you when you make a part when you play a character but the unfortunate thing is every time it gets melted down and you have to start <laughs> all over again and that's how I feel I think that magic thing is very ephemeral and that confidence thing in life there are moments when you feel it and you feel you could there's nothing you can do and then the next day you can feel I can't do a damn thing and I can't do it at all so I think it's but then something <coughs> happens again doesn't it after you lose that confidence yes but it's work it it's work you get it through working hard mm, mm. and is the director very much a part of that process that when you are sometimes. feeling a role <laughs> sometimes yes sometimes that. true but how is and how does the liaison between your interpretation of the role and the director's interpretation of the role help to mold that or not cement it could be uh, uh, uh. Edward. Well, it, it changes. I mean, it's like asking you which medium do you like, movies or television or, or the theater. It depends on the script and the people you're working with and the relationship you have with the director. Some directors strike sparks um, in a creative, happy way. Some directors strike sparks in an angry way, and you, and you fight and you fight, but in, you hope in the back of your mind that he's, he has a goal in mind. He's not just exercising his ego and wanting to enforce his will on this production because he thinks he's smarter than you are or vice versa, the actor thinks he knows more. Somewhere you're working together on some common idea and there's some of it, when you start out, you don't really know where you're going to end up. And you have to have confidence that the director will at least give you a safety net, that you have um, a few commonly agreed principles or ideas about the play that will survive your exploration. And that's the kind of director I like to work with. I mean, we'll I'd like to ask you, you're all so gifted, and you're all fortunately working today mm -hmm. in plays. Are you finding anything that, uh, in what you're doing that you want to be able to push it a little bit further, that you want to m move whatever you're, the part that you're doing? Do you want to be able to find some other meaning in what it is that you're saying in the role we're in the role that doing? you're doing now that you're doing night after night and day after day do you feel something that maybe i've not gotten all of it maybe i could get a That's little bit more out of it do you do that I think, at all? I, think that I think that happens almost uh, automatically i think i think there's a that the, the, there's a there's a searching all the time for mm -hmm. for something else for something new something different something richer there's it's it's this, it's the great privilege that we have that of, of doing what we do it, it's a uh, it's like you know we talk about doing plays acting you know it, it, we, we play parts you know it, it's in a sense there's a there's a sense of game there's a, there's a sense of it being a game a sense of it being fun and that it's you know we we, we all in a sort of metaphorical sense we all kind of like hold hands and dive in mm -hmm. every night and and if you're if you happen to be in a show that you enjoy that you're enjoying the people you're working with that whole that even that couple of hours every night can be incredibly exciting because, uh, and if you feel safe enough and you know comfortable enough to keep trying, I, I, th I think it's. Um, I, don't, I, I don't. I don't think I've ever worked with anyone who who is happy to. How much just does keep the audience contribute to that? Do you, if you haven't gotten the same reaction that you expected <laughs> each time? Sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're an actual hindrance. I mean, if you get mm -hmm. coffers and if they're loggy and if they're this, and then you have to work mm -hmm. very hard. Mm -hmm. We've all known, you know, about to. It's like pushing rocks up the hill some nights. 
And some nights the audience is like that, and they're ahead of you, and they pull you, and it's great. It is a different experience. Sorry. sorry, it's just it's, it, that's the amazing thing about theatre. I mean, I have a horror of this expression. You know, when people talk about we're freezing the show now, and you think, I'm freezing the show. What does that mean? This is something living and breathing. Oh, when they talk about, you know, we're not going to change it anymore. We're just going to this is this is the show. This is how it will be seen. Every night. And you think, well, if only I've done some nights when I thought. That's it. I'd love that to be seen every night. But the truth is, is the next night, it might not be as good. And it's completely ephemeral, that little percentage that make, is the difference between something that's good and something that's magic is not something that you can count on every night. And I think all good actors are constantly re-exploring, finding things to kick your, start your imagination, to is keep it, it fresh. Is it tougher in musicals, if I can ask a question, I, you guys? I think it is, because I, I'm not actually used to musicals. I, yeah. don't, I haven't done, spent a lot of time in musical theatre, and what they were going around saying the show is fixed now, and that was my reaction. Yeah. This is horror. What are you talking about? I think Natasha is onto something, which is... Which is, is Actors often say, um, the audience probably doesn't notice this. But that, the part that the audience doesn't notice actually tends to be the, the really precious part mm. to you, because mm -hmm. that is the tiny little bit that you get to change mm -hmm. every night, that you get to explore and try to improve. So it's I also keeping <coughs> fresh, mm -hmm. because there must be a challenge to the actor. Yeah. That Especially it in a long run. But in a long run, do you sing? Would you sing a song differently, one night to the next, in terms of, or, or, is, it, or is it more to do with an attitude towards the, the, the song? Yes, both questions. It, it comes out differently, I think. To, especially when, once we get into long runs, uh, the analogy I've kind of used is when you're starting out with, I think, any show or anything that you're doing is you're standing at the shore of this great body of water and first you kind of stick your toe in you test the water and then you kind of take your shoes off and lift up your pants and go wading in and you keep going in deeper and after a while you 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 think okay i don't, I don't want to touch bottom anymore i'm gonna go out there and see what happens and you go out there and for a little bit and you come back because it's a little scary because you don't know something might come up from underneath and pull you down and after a while you get very very comfortable out there and i think that's where you start discovering the magic and the joy of it and what happens, I think, a lot of times, because uh, the company that I'm in, we've discussed this quite a bit, is the difference between what we consider a really great show and what we consider, oh, that was an awful show, worst, worst show. Peter Friedman, who plays Tata during our vows <laughs> a lot of times, that's kind of one of the few exchanges we have in the show. And when we come out, we kind of say, good show or not, and I know when he does this, <laughs> that means, oh, awful. I was just awful tonight. And then he'll go out and get this huge, gigantic hand, and everybody loves him. And you don't understand that. But I think what happens is when, when you start doing a role for such a long time, you start focusing in on a smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller level until it gets to the place that's what is an excellent performance, I think, to each one of us. It's on such a subtle level that the audience, you forget the big picture and that the audience is taking in the whole thing and the whole show and, and the whole gestalt of the thing. And, uh, and you kind of have to keep reminding yourself, I think, that it's not about this little tiny pause that wasn't exactly where it should have been. And, and, and it's a constant exploration, I think, of that. And, and, but that's what is fun about the theater. It's always evolving. And but you can do that in a musical as well as a... 
In the, in, well, I'm very fortunate to have a musical that, that there's great material, yeah. and it's a great actor's role, yeah. and great actor's songs. Mm. So some, some uh, shows don't lend themselves mm -hmm. to that. Uh, some shows are more about the pure entertainment of it, mm -hmm. and I guess you appreciate it from another, a crazy for you, for instance, mm -hmm. which is not, you don't go deep into the acting, but you can sure uh, explore the bits and what makes timing work and there are other things to explore but I've been very fortunate to get some nice meaty acting roles also in a, in a big theater like your 2000 sorry everything that you've done that I've watched you and all through the years have brought you to this point and that you're able to tell us so so very clearly what theater is You've given us a whole picture of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's really, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will. I hope I don't I'm have sure. the answer. It's a, <laughs> those answers you're always looking for. We well, were talking. If you had, <coughs> it wouldn't be theater. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were speaking before about audience reaction and your interpretation and your feeling about the audience. Now, you've all acted here and in London and, or in Canada, outside of our, out of New York. How do you find, or do you find, the audiences different in London than they are here, theater audiences, reacting to a role that you're playing? Are the audiences different well, in Canada? Art would be the yeah. first thing that you would talk well, about. Well, uh, I, I didn't do the play in no, London, but I so... No, um, you worked in London. Yeah, uh, worked uh, there. My, my, my general impression, I could be completely wrong, and this is totally subjective, um, so don't take this, you know... To have any value at all, but my my <laughs> feeling is that American audiences seem to be, generally speaking, much more, much quicker to let you know how they're feeling about what you're doing than English audiences. In my experience in America, audiences, if they love what you're doing, they really let you know. They really let you know, and if they don't like what you're doing, they let you know that too. Whereas in London, for instance, very often you'll get this kind of Rather, rather polite sort of reaction, and and you you're not quite sure you know whether it's kind of whether it's happened that night or not. I mean, we've had uh, we've had evenings here that the difference in the in the audience reaction, not not just at the end at the applause, not the, not just that at the bows, but also <coughs> during the show. Um, it's been like chalk and cheese. I mean, we've had we, there's a moment in the play just before I come on. I've got there's about three or four minutes before I make my first entrance. And I'm backstage listening to, to what's going on. There are two very nice, two lovely scenes going on before I go on. And I'm standing in the wings with the stage manager. And before I go on, we both always look to each other. We always, we always, we always say, screamers. Mm. They're either screamers or they're murmurs. You know, and, you, and our audiences are either like just screaming with pleasure or they're being very kind of, you know. And, and it's, that, it's that kind of a difference. And that, when I first experienced that, when I first worked in the States, I, it, it knocked my socks off because I couldn't. I could. I, I was. I was amazed. I mean, it's. It's. I find it delightful. You know? But that's. That, that's. That's been my experience. Well, Jimmy, you could certainly tell yes. us about that coming back from doing Oliver in London, working here in New York, and then working over there. No, I just. I just repeat what you say. Um, right. They do in England say, "Oh, damn good show." <laughs> no, 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 I'm back. I'm exaggerating, but I. I do find that the. The audiences in England seem to be copying the Americans. I think the audiences are getting better in England. Um, when they're enthusiastic, they're very enthusiastic now. They may not have been a few years ago. Um, 
but we had so, so much to choose from a few years ago. I love I loved the American audience, I love the English audiences. I haven't played anywhere else, so I, I, I'm not an expert on, mm. on other than English or American. But uh, both of them, in my opinion, are very enthusiastic if the material's good. Give them bad material and they'll boo you off the stage and they're entitled to. Mm. I think but. the British audiences, though, are less um, influenced by the critics over here. I think American audiences will read a review mm -hmm. and then uh, if the review is a good review, fine, then they'll go and buy a ticket to a show. I think the British audiences are more adventurous, they're more <laughs> curious about something new and it sort of makes me sad in my profession that we don't have as many new plays starting here in America as you do in London. And also, I think Americans now really have theater goers here, have a love affair with the British theater. And um, has brought, they, you certainly brought over some wonderful, wonderful plays. And the challenging plays also from the royal court. And well, from, theater people uh, in England lament the fact that most of the good writing is coming from Ireland. You and know, Ireland, that, right. But, but it's everybody, it's, the grass is always greener, you know, someplace. But there, also, in London, there's, there's a slightly different structure in as much as we have a a lot of audiences things. read a lot more reviews. They, they read a lot more critics. We've got mm -hmm. like five, six, One seven. One critic can't sink a ship. We've got seven or eight actually major critics. That do they all come on the same night? Mm. Yeah, more or less. I do they? Do, but are, they, are their reviews all published the next day? Because most people only buy one paper a day. Yeah. No, they all, they all come. They all come out the same day, apart from like the weeklies and the mm -hmm. monthlies. But there's a much uh, wider range of of, of reviewers. Yeah. Uh, there isn't just like one voice. And also, it, it, England's always been blessed, certainly since the end of the, since the last, since the Second World War. It's changing now, but up until recently, we had a very well-subsidized repertory and fringe circuit mm. where there was a lot of public money put into uh, areas where new writers, new plays, uh, new theater companies were encouraged to experiment and, and sort of spread their spread their, 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 uh, their field of activity and it was supported by a lot of public money. And that's created, I think, a kind of a sensibility about new work, new, new, art, you know, new, new writers in particular, mm. which we're now reaping the benefits of. Mm -hmm. I mean, people like Martin McDonough, um, Jess Butterworth, I mean, all these new young writers that are coming out of Ireland and England are, are the result of 25 years of a serious financial commitment on the part mm. of uh, mm. the British government mm -hmm. to, yeah. to provide money to, so, so, that, so those, those shoots can be nurtured. Mm -hmm. You're already being the benefit of it now. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's unfortunate. There's, also, there's, there's time in England for a word of mouth to get around. It isn't just, as you said, that one paper. Mm. There's enough time that they can, with the Sunday papers and the various papers that are there, that you can hear what people are saying about it and use their opinion for it here. Build an audience. It's too fast. Well, our, our, as Light certainly knows through the Williamstown Theater, our new work is coming from regional theaters and from workshops that are not in New York because even off-Broadway today has become very, very expensive and um, difficult to start mm -hmm. a new play. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, we always end up looking four plays that already have the affirmation of success attached to them. Mm. So an audience will go and buy a ticket before the play even opens. And where does that come from? That comes from England by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And um, to get
get back anyway to reviews, I want to ask you, do you all read your reviews and how do they affect you? And <laughs> if by chance, this is a, well, a double header, <laughs> a double header, if by chance um, you happen to get an excellent review, and shall I say the, less, the rest of the mm. cast doesn't get as positive a review, how do you handle that? And does it affect uh, the performance? I've tried many ways of dealing with reviews. The not reading them all. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not reading them. Uh, reading them after the show was over, and it, I gave up. I just, I read them. A review is never good enough because you <laughs> want to be the next Barrymore. So, well, what, yeah, he was wonderful in the part. Wonderful. Why wasn't I superb? Why wasn't I this? And, or a review is, is wounding and painful. And, and John Simon will say, well, he really can't play an Englishman. It's one of the few things I know I can do rather well. <laughs> and he just picks something, well, Herman is not very English in this part. So they hurt. So you just read him and get on with it. I mean, and if you know that he doesn't like the rest of the cast, or if you were singled out as being bad, and everybody else in the cast is good, you still depend on your co-workers to keep you afloat. And you go back to the play. Just mm -hmm. keep doing mm -hmm. the play. And, and to hell with these people. Um, we can't say to hell with them all together because they, are, they're, they affect our livelihood. But ultimately, you have to have enough strength of mind and character to just throw them off if he or she is one person. And, but it doesn't matter that they've seen a lot of plays. Maybe they've made a lot of mistakes, but their point of view is, is crap. So you just have to dismiss it. There's, an, there's an old saying I remember hearing once, and this kind of stuck in my head, especially with reviews, I find it very... Uh, 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 nice is uh, if if one person calls thee an ass, ignore it. If two people call thee an ass, consider it. If three people call thee an ass, get thee a saddle. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of look at reviews in the same way. If one person says something, and you know everybody else is saying other things, but if enough people say something, you do have to, I think, uh, because we're all, I think, always trying to grow and and do what we can, and we don't a lot of times get a one-on-one -on -one relationship with an audience, except for what you hear at the end of the show or your, the last that you get. And sometimes you need to consider what, what uh, Critics people have are saying. Critics changed, though. It used to be, uh, yes. uh, Simon, uh, 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 what's his, uh, Callow's uh, book about Charles Lawton, the wonderful book on acting. Uh, he traced Lawton's career through the 20s and 30s and consistently went back to good reviewers. And is it Agate on the, um, uh, on the Times in the 20s and 30s? What a reviewer. Brilliant. He was interested in bringing an actor along and saw how he developed. He didn't want to destroy him. He said, well, no, this performance, he's wasting himself because he is a great actor, but you should do this, this, this. And now he's flowering. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. And r reviewers simply don't have that idea that they contribute to the health and life of this art form of ours. They think that it's going to last so forever. responsive to all of our questions here. And there are still so many that haven't been answered, but there are we're going to try and have you answer a few of them from our audience here today. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. Hi, my name is Sabrina Musi. I was wondering, as a student who is also studying drama, um, do you feel it's more important, whoever wants to answer this, um, do you feel it's more important to receive a full education in school for theater as opposed to the experience? Who's going to answer that? Well, my... my um um, my, we wanted my daughter very much to go to, to college. My daughter's Gwyneth Paltrow, who's having a very splashy career at the moment. We wanted her to go to college. I was heartbroken when she, when she pulled out. But something, when I, when I started out, my father insisted I go to college. 
you have to start, you know, have to have a complete education. But now the, the business is so geared to some of the greatest roles are the younger roles. So when she finally, when she decided to do that and embark on her career, I thought, well, I guess it was the right time because the, there were so many beautiful roles at, at that age. That's changed, I think, from the time. When, when I started, it was very different. You had the classical training. But it's important to, um, to work, I think, as Hi, my name's Amy. This is for Natasha. What has been your most influential role? Influential in what way? Like influenced you? Like in influenced me? Um, a part that I've played? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think they're just women that I've really, really connected with on some uh, level. I don't know, women who tend to be um, having going through some terrible time and somehow in the gutter or some way or another, I don't know. Anna Christie uh, playing Sally Bowles, Nina in the Seagull, um, Catherine in Suddenly Last Summer. That those those spring to mind. Thank you. Hi, my name is Leah Marie Angelini. Um, this is for anyone who wants to answer it. Um, does talent and ambition matter anymore in theater when you're going on auditions? Does talent and ambition, ambition matter when you're out auditioning? Sometimes it's the only thing that keeps you afloat. I mean, yeah, I would say you have to have ambition to get up and make a fool of yourself and have someone judge you. It's scary mm -hmm. as hell. Uh, and with the lights in your eyes and thank you, next, and you walk mm -hmm. out feeling like a rag. Um, and uh, talent, yeah, you should have it or you're probably not going to make a living <laughs> in the business, but you should be able to at least use it and br have enough control of yourself to bring it to bear on an, on an audition. It's, yeah, I would say, pretty necessary to have. Hi, I'm Michelle Shingola. Um, I addressed my question to John Vickery. Um, what is your definition of being a successful actor? Oh, dear. Uh, I, I think, as Alfred said, making a living, and, and then there are the, the rewards, I think, for me, are mostly internal. I was, I sort of uh, quaked at the question about success earlier, because I've, I feel like I've had many opportunities and squandered them all, uh, because um, I, think, I think most of the rewards are, are internal. Uh, I'm going to draw this to a close now and just so I have time to thank each and every one of you that are participating in today's seminar and working in the theater. Uh, these are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and today's seminar is on performance and I don't know when we've had such an extraordinary panel as we have today. Ed Herman in Deep Blue Sea and Alpha <coughs> Molina in Art, Life Danner in Deep Blue Sea, John Vickery in Lion King, and I'm going to skip our moderators and come back to you, <laughs> Natasha Richardson in Cabaret, and Brian Stokes Miller in, in oh, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> about <laughs> in ragtime. And our moderators have just been wonderful. Jim Dale, who has been actor, I don't know, actor, comedian, writer, and today moderator extraordinaire. 
and Dasha Epstein, who is a <laughs> member of the He'll board of directors <laughs> of the American <laughs> Theatre Wing, most knowledgeable. And I thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. <laughs>